0: Hey, I'm Bob and for as long as I can remember, I've loved pop culture. Despite the challenges I've faced in my life, pop culture has always been there for me. I love talking to people and being a platform for others to share their thoughts, stories, because if there's one thing I never get tired of, it's seeing driven, talented, and inspiring individuals follow their dreams, no matter what obstacles are in their way. And I know a thing or two about that. Welcome to the DJ Bob Show. I'm DJ Bob. Roll it. Lewis Henry Mitchell, the creative director of character design at Sesame Workshop. And what is there not to talk to him about? This is a beautiful conversation, and it was the start of a beautiful friendship. Listen in. So for those that don't know you, could you introduce yourself and kind of give a little bit of an elevator pitch of all you've done over the years, because you've done a lot. And it's good, because the elevator might get stuck. <laughs> yeah.
1: I love that. We're going to need that stuck elevator, because I have a lot to say. So yeah, um, well, in the end, my name is Lewis Henry Mitchell. I'm the creative director of character design for Sesame Street. Even though Sesame Workshop is the umbrella company over you know we have several different other shows in development but my focus is on sesame street so i design all the new muppets i direct the photo shoots of the still muppets whenever they're in a an, um, you know for the library where we can you know we can silhouette them and put different backgrounds in them um i also do the macy's thanksgiving day parade work you know whenever that is needed i design the, the floats the the balloons the float that i designed most recently is was for the 35th anniversary and they still use it and they we're already in season 54 they really loved it but um yeah it all came about as a dream when i, when I was about six years old i saw uh, jim henson on the ed sullivan show and um you know i'd always seen the muppets on the ed sullivan show that's the only reason i watched i didn't care about the beatles or the rolling stones or you know james brown Whenever he said, you know, here come the Muppets, whatever it's all said, I would run and do a sliding run in front of the TV, not caring who else was watching because I wanted to see the Muppets. At the end, Jim Henson would come out and shake Sullivan's hand. I didn't care about that guy. I didn't know who that skinny guy with the beard was. One day he came out and he still had Kermit on his hand. Now, Kermit wasn't a frog. He was more like a lizard back then. But he was Kermit and he was green. And it was it was a segment where the giant piano eventually ate him. So. but Oh, was, yeah. 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 But the thing is that after that segment, when Jim Henson came out to shake Ed Sullivan hand, he really couldn't because he still had Kermit on. And that's when it snapped, my head snapped. I said, you mean a man was doing that? And it blew my mind. Something snapped in my head that never snapped back. And my mom didn't know what to do with me. So she just immersed me into this world of, of exploration and 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 excitement, you know? And it was, I'm sorry, this keeps ringing. But, okay, um, you're good. But yeah, no, it, it was just beautiful. so but the thing is I also liked comic books. So I went and I got involved with um, you know, st- with buying comic books and, and just reading them. For the most part, I looked at the pictures because the pictures are so great. There was this one artist named Neil Adams. He's the one that made Batman really cool back in the 70s. So and I when I was 11 years old, I found an issue of Green Lantern and Green Arrows, number 85. It was called Snowbirds Don't Fly. It was the drug issue. And the thing is that I couldn't believe the level of detail this man was putting in comic books. I had never seen it before. I felt like I was watching a movie. So, but the thing is, and I just was so fixated on that. But eventually I had an opportunity to, to meet him because I worked for a man named Howard Chaikin. I was in high school, the high school of art and design in New York city. And um, the owner of the of the New York comic art gallery who I worked for, I asked him, I begged him to give me a job he paid me in comic books because he, he just opened the store and he, he couldn't really afford to pay me yet. So I said, just pay me in comics. I got to work here. But eventually he said, you know, a friend of mine needs an assistant. His name is Howard Chakin And, you know, and the thing is, you know, back then I wasn't crazy about Howard Chaykin's work because I didn't understand it. I love it now, but I knew he was in the comic book field. So I went ahead and I, I, um, I showed him my work. He loved my work and I became his assistant. Then he told me that, you know, the first Friday of every month, we have uh, all the artists in New York and some people even from out of town come in to have what we call the first Friday party. And I'd like you to come with me if you like to come. And I said, oh man, that'd be great to meet all these comic book artists. And then he said, you know, Neil Adams, this one's going to be at Neil Adams' house. Then I got scared because, you know, Neil had a very high standard and he was not shy about letting people know whether he liked the work or not. So I was nervous because he told me to bring my sketchbooks. But I brought them and, you know, Neil looked at them forward and backwards and at 17 years old, he hired me on the spot to do uh this segment called tippy toe jones he had he had a magazine called echo of future past and i got to do some work for that and you know again i was working for my hero he was like everything to me i couldn't believe he hired me at 17 but sesame was always in the back of my mind so i realized when i was in college so maybe i can find a way to work for jim henson maybe even on sesame street i guess they use artists so I you know I told I told a college professor about that. And he said, oh, you're never going to get that job. Don't even try. You're going to break your own heart. And um, but my mother said, Don't listen to him, just keep going. So I did. It took me eight months. I met a man named Jim Mayan who saw my work and and just said, you know, I, I love your work. I'm gonna get you started on a project. So till this day, we're like dear friends. But he was like my leader, my guru back then. He taught me how to draw the characters and He actually—it took me six months just to learn how to draw Big Bird, and before he didn't have to give me corrections anymore. And um, yeah, it just kept going from there. And then that was freelance work, but I count it because it was very immersive. So that was in 1992. Then in 2000, they um, they asked me to come on full time, and I've been with them ever since. You know, doing all this awesome. It's hard to say work because it never is the most difficult they ever had on doing this work still felt like an amazing opportunity and I had a blast and maybe later we can talk about that most difficult
0: day I ever had
1: but I'll leave it up to you because you're the interviewer
0: well thank you so much for giving us that little brief synopsis because most people just say I do this go for it but <laughs> you're so good at storytelling through your art and even just through communication it's great and so what is something that you wish people knew about you and your job? Like, what is something that people think they have an idea, of, but they're completely wrong?
1: <laughs> I love the question. Again, you're you're one of the most unique question askers of all. Um, the, the main thing is that how much I love life, because, you know, I don't separate my work and my life. I'm I'm fortunate to do because I know some people don't have that opportunity, like doctors and like police officers and people like that, that probably really should separate their life from their work. But because I'm I'm such a nerd for the Muppets and such a big fan. Nerd is a good word, by the way. Um, oh yeah. We love yeah. being a nerd, yeah. Absolutely, man. I'm in that I'm in that tribe for sure. But um yeah, I just you know, um, immerse myself into that world and You know, I want people to see, and people do see it because they say, why are you so excited? I mean, I know you like your job and everything, but why are you so, it's because I love it. I've I've been watching The Muppets since I'm a little kid and now I get to do, I get to participate in what Jim Henson considered his most important work. It was the one thing he would not sell to Disney when they were talking about doing that deal. He protected Sesame Street. It was like the crown jewel. It was the most important part. And now I get to do, Kind of what he did. He designed the new Muppets. and Now I'm the designer of, of although the new ones. When they have to build them from scratch. I'm not talking about the anything Muppets. That they can make whenever they need to. Whenever they actually have to put a budget behind a brand new. Build from scratch. That's my job. I have to design them. And how could I not love that? So because I love my life. And I think to me. My life is my work of art. And the things that I do. Are, that, that are considered art. Are really the result of my life. So even though I'm still less, of course, learning about things and everything, I I was able to connect with the right people and see my dream fulfilled. And now it's gone way beyond because I didn't, I wasn't looking to become the creative director of character design. I just wanted to be part of the Muppet world with my artwork, but they saw what I, what I could do. And they kept promoting me till this, till I got to this point, I never asked for a promotion. I was just so grateful to be part of this, but I, I'm not going to say no to a promotion because no, it me more I, yeah. access. Yeah. So that's the, but that I love life so much and that I don't separate my work from my life because it really all is all one flowing, beautiful experience.
0: So what was your first interaction like with a Muppet or a human cast member? Oh, okay. I, I love that. Well,
1: Right now, I'll tell you more about it later, but Cookie Monster is my favorite Muppet. But my first favorite is um, was Ernie. And I just loved him because I loved Rubber Ducky. Again, when I was nine years old when I was watching Sesame Street. And I, I saw the very first episode when it first came out. I saw the claymation form, that little creature, and then the letters Sesame Street formed up. I didn't know what I was watching, but I just stuck with it. And when I saw the Big Bird and, and Oscar, I said, those look like the same Muppets or the same puppets like that guy that's on Ed Sullivan and turned out it was Jim Henson. So anyhow, fast forward, I'm I'm just starting my job as a freelance artist. And again, it was very immersive. So I consider it part of my whole career at Sesame and I went to the townhouse where, you know, where they, no, it wasn't the town. It was the, um, the workshop where, where where it used to be, um, not too far away from the townhouse right oh, down yeah. like, like third Avenue and 60 something street, something like that. But anyway, I I got to go up there because we were getting ready to develop some. No, it was Sesame Street around the corner. That's why it was so. Oh, I remember
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I I had to help create some of the assets to kind of introduce around the corner. But in the process of that, I got to see and handle some of the Muppets. The very first Muppet I was able to handle was Ernie. And I said, "Oh, this is cool. I get to work with Ernie. But then the the person that that brought me to that meeting it was a it was a meeting we all had to talk about what we're going to do, and he was you know we're handing out all Muppets to everybody was kind of passing them around which was just a dream come true, but he said look at the label on the inside of that Ernie I'm curious about something so I looked at it, it was from 1985, that was one of Jim Henson's Ernie's. and then when I put my hand back in there I could almost feel the indentations of his of his where his fingerprints were, and it just it just Took me to another world. I'm saying, you mean, I'm operating one of Jim Henson's Ernies. Oh my gosh, Bob! I I just can't even describe what what that did to me, because it was I mean it was all good, but at the same time it was like, wow. I you mean,
0: were like literally taken back in time with yeah. ju- with just that exchange, like, wow.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was phenomenal. Wow! Thank you for asking that. It brought back a deep, deep memory. How I, when I first started, I was operating one of Jim Henson's Ernie's. Just
0: means so much to me. I I love that because we all have these moments that when we grow up watching something and then we meet the people that are involved in it, or we sort of have these tangible moments with these things that we love it's unlike anything else
1: got that right <laughs> and it just kept getting better and better because then then he handed me cookie monster then uh i forgot uh i think bert was in the room we didn't have all the muppets because there's so many but we had quite a few so yeah it was great to be able to put them on an opera of course i was looking at all the labels and i was working one of frank oz's you know uh um cookie monsters it was just a dream. I mean, it was look, this is beyond my dreams. I had some pretty intense dreams, wild dreams, but my experience of actually working at Sesame Street, it surpassed all my dreams. Everything that I ever dreamt of wanting to do, wanting to be involved with, has been surpassed by the actual experience of working at Sesame Workshop. So I am, people say, you must be really proud of your achievements. I said, no, I'm grateful. It is not about pride. Because how many people, you know, want to do something like this and they don't get to do it. And for whatever reason, I was allowed to step in and do this. So it's all about gratitude because there are a lot of talented people out there. But the the circumstances worked out where I was able to get through to the right people because I was really pursuing it.
0: And here I am. Yeah, I mean, I pride myself in having conversations with people where they're so shocked about what I'm going to ask next because you, you don't think about this stuff in this deep detail that often. So I'm glad that I could do that for you. Oh, I love it. I'm so excited. <laughs> and speaking of that, there are a couple characters that I haven't been seen in a while that I love and I want to know if you had anything to do with these guys. You remember the segment from like season thirty-two or something, Monster Clubhouse.
1: Yes, I remember Monster Clubhouse.
0: Those guys are so under, underrated and underappreciated. What are your memories of those guys? What are your memories of that time on the show? Yeah,
1: you know, it was so much fun. You know, and I'll tell you why that it didn't work. It was a lot of fun. It was so colorful and you know the, they had all this crazy stuff and you know the even the I think his name was Narf, but he had—he was a long-headed orange one that had that, eyes that his pupils would spin around like cookie monsters. Then there was Mel, and oh, I forgot all their names. I think Phoebe might have been one. Yeah, but the thing, yeah, but um, the thing about that is that the show was so interesting, so colorful, it was—it became a distraction because they went back to test the children after they watched that segment, and the children didn't remember anything. It was almost like a deer in the headlights. They saw all this color, the songs, all the things happening. The mother. Sanctuary overload. Exactly right. So they said, you know what, this is not, this is defeating the purpose. We were trying to teach lessons in there. And the kids were just so, you know, like I said, deer in the headlights, they, they didn't get a thing out of it. So that's why they ended it. But it was so much fun. That, that was I had to do a photo shoot with those characters. I even had to do some um 2D, two dimensional drawings. They were fun to draw especially Mel. Mel was my favorite one, the one with no
0: eyes. <laughs> yeah, I, I love, I just, that segment is so underappreciated. I love it so much. And I know that you were involved around that time. So I wanted to bring that up to you. Absolutely.
1: But again, you know, if it's not working for the children, it doesn't matter how fun and cool it is. It, the whole purpose is to make sure that we're servicing the children and their families and it, it, they weren't getting it. So
0: that's the only reason why. But a character that people do get is Julia. Yes. Can we just talk about how much that is such a step forward in the disability community and how much it means to me to be living in a world where someone with autism, which I do not have personally, but When I was a kid, it was very rare that I saw myself on television. Right. Very rare. Like, we all have those moments where we are not seen. And then, eventually, a couple years after, when I'm in my childhood years, toddler years, I watch Sesame Street and there's this character, there's this human character in a wheelchair named Tara. Yes. Who, who is actually one of my dearest friends now. I talk to her regularly.
1: Wow, that's great to hear.
0: And she's uh, it's amazing, but seeing someone, seeing a muppet possess these human qualities that are are ultra specific to a specific child, means the world so talk about julia and sort of how that came about and sort of the do and don't making that character fit into the world
1: sure thing thank you for asking because i love her whenever i design one of them up is they they kind of like one of my kids you know so of course she's my sweetheart and she means a lot to me that was a really significant point in my career at Sesame Workshop, even though it came later on. But again, the, the job just keeps getting bigger and bigger. But at that point, you know, I had now Sesame Workshop had been working on the autism initiative for about 10 years. They didn't, they were trying to get it right. They didn't quite know. And that's one thing they, unless something is like an emergency, like, you know, when Black Lives Matter, that when that happened, they, they wanted to create um, content so that we could speak to children about kind of about like what's happening, so that they have a place to go because they couldn't watch the news, obviously, or they shouldn't be watching the news. Soon. But with with Julia, it's like she she was like representing um autism, and that takes time to get that right. Sesame Workshop went to the community and asked questions, and went to institutions that focused on that. and really like I said, 10 years in before they realized now we can start after 10 years of development, they said, now we can start. So they came to me. What they didn't know, it's like I didn't know they were working on an initiative for 10 years before they start started the actual development. They didn't know that I was working with the, with children on the spectrum at a school on Staten Island. And, you know, my, my friend, my good friend, uh, Rachel London Carter, she was an intern at the time at Sesame Workshop and we became really good friends. And then one day she said, you know what? You'd be really good for the kids. Why don't you come and try to volunteer at my school? And I said, well, no, I don't want to disrupt any of their development because I'm not trained for this. But then she said, no, you just have to love them. I said, well, I, I can do that. I can love the kids because I love kids. And of course, when I got there, I just fell in love with all of them. But I got to work with two kids in particular. You know, one, one young man, he was, um, he had really had a challenge with his motor skills and, you know, he would he didn't want to try anymore. They tried to get him to to make his name out of the blocks they gave him just to just to spell his name with the blocks they had letters on them but you know he sometimes he'd knock them off the table because he just was having such a hard time he didn't even want to try but they assigned me to him and he liked me a lot so he tried to please me so he would really work hard to to you know get the blocks in order even and he was able to spell his name with the first four letters even though his first the first letter of his name began with an m it, he had it upside down, but it was in place. I was proud to say, "Yeah, you got it in place." But you know what? Try to just turn that one over, so you can know you'll have at least the first four letters. And of course, he did, and he was really great. But the one that really touched my heart was the a, a little girl that I worked with. She was nonverbal, and her her main thing was putting puzzles together. So you know, one one time, I was holding a puzzle piece, and she thought I didn't know where it went, so she snatched it out of my hand and put it down for me. It was really sweet. But she wasn't mean; she just you know she was just trying to get the puzzle done but um i remember uh, on the, my very last day volunteering there, and i really didn't want to stop but i really couldn't because my schedule didn't allow me i was using up my my um they call pto days paid paid time off days and i was using that to go to the school and i was running out so and i needed some for other things so i had to, that was my last day. so anyhow i went to the school and that day for whatever reason um, most of the men, if not all, I think it was the only man in that division that showed up, and the kids felt more comfortable whenever there were the men lined up at the doorways whenever they had to leave the school in the back of the school they had trailers where they would you know stuff envelopes and create build pens they had this nice this work of program for the kids would actually earn some money, which is really beautiful. but anyhow, I was standing at the door letting all the kids come out and you know, the teachers were there too, but Um, when the girl that I was assigned to, when she came out, she stopped and looked around and then she came and grabbed my hand because she thought I was lost and I was already in love with her, but she, she's looking out for me. Like I'm saying, I'm here trying to help her, but she's looking out for me. It just blew me away. So when I, when I got the assignment to design Julia, I didn't design Julia based on how she, this little girl looked. I based Julia on how she made me feel. So that's what she, Julia has a very warm, fun, uh, lively look to her. And it comes from that, that way that little girl made me feel. So when we developed Julia, um, and I wouldn't have touched Julia if I didn't have this experience. Because, I, again, I volunteer with the kids at the school, at their homes, on outings. It was very immersive. I got to know the parents. I got to would, know- you,
0: would you do it again?
1: Oh, absolutely. The only thing that stopped me was, again, I was running out of time. And the thing is, my schedule now is even more intense. Back then, it was a little bit more room. But if the opportunity came up, I would jump. Because, again, it, I learned more about me, too. I mean, I learned about them, but I learned about me and how, you know, because there was a certain amount of patience that I didn't realize I had. And again, it was, it was out of compassion and love for the kids. But it, it was nice to know that part about me. See, I didn't realize. Yeah, I mean, I raised a son, but he didn't have autism. But it was nice to know that I could work with other children that even, even though they had special needs, I was able to do that. But again, it came from the love. I had no experience. It came from love and I love that that was the motivating factor in the whole thing. Just my love for kids in general, not specifically special needs children. But anyhow, so I I was able to design Julia um, as a 2D character. She wasn't supposed to be a Muppet because, and I was happy about that because you can't represent all of the different behaviors. You know, it's only one, you know, every carry body is very unique in their experience. So I was happy that whenever we talked about her behaviors, you wouldn't even see what that is. It would just be written in the book. She was just going to be a, a character in a book with Elmo and Abby with her. It was called Be Amazing 123. I think is the name of the book. It was an outreach book that was given out free to the, to the community. But um, but she was so successful that one of the top executives at the at Sesame Workshop said, you know, we really need to make her an actual Muppet on the show. And I said, no, that's that's a mistake. Because we're gonna we're gonna alienate certain people because when we when she starts doing a behavior, what if that's not the same behavior someone else has? Well, we're gonna alienate so many people. And they said, "No, you know what? We're not trying to represent the the spectrum. We're trying to point to it. We're pointing to autism just to bring attention through Sesame Street." I said, "Well, I can get behind that." So I went ahead and did all the the turnaround drawings for Henson, and the the thing with Julia because this was an opportunity to do something fresh and new, so. I, I I knew she was never going to engage with the audience and say hi, you know, welcome to Sesame Street. She was just going to be either coloring or playing with her her doll fluster or engaging in whatever it was that she was doing, and she was never going to look in the camera. So I needed to give her traits to make her immediately engageable. Well, one thing I did because you know when you when you design a character, there are details on the character that tell the story. You, you the story begins when you see the character really. So I gave her a diamond shaped nose because she's a diamond in the rough. And I goes, I don't want to be overt about it. I just want people to have little hints about understanding her. And again, these are things that Henson told me. Now, I was working with Raleigh Cruson who built who built um, Julia. and she said, Lewis, you're asking me to do things I've never done. I've been here at the time. she'd been for just over 40 years. And she says, I've never done a thing, anything like this before And I said, you know what we've never done a character on the autism spectrum before. So this is an opportunity for something new. And she got behind me immediately with that. So, um, and I, I angled her eyes in a different way, not to make her look odd or anything, but just to show that there was something different happening with her. And again, you know, Raleigh was like, well, we've never gone this far with the angle. I said, I know, but let's just try it. And she wanted to, she just, she was just trained. Of course she worked with Jim Henson. They have their standards, but this was a unique opportunity. So the the one detail I really wanted Julia to have was I wanted to give her human texture hair because of the the truth that she was not going to look right in the camera and engage people. But I felt if she had human texture hair, she would look more like a real little girl and people will see her and have warmth toward her even though they're not not engaging with her. She's not looking at them or anything. And the executive producer at the time said, no, 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 we don't want to keep her out of the Muppet world. We want her to be just like all the other Muppets. And I was, you know, she's not really just like all the other Muppets. She's in the Muppet world. But there's something different that we're trying to do here. Let's take advantage. But she really, she was standing around. No, I don't want her to have, I want her to have maybe yarn or ostrich feathers or something else. But not no human texture hair. Because it's going to make her look a little too out of the Muppet world. Which, you know, like Prairie Dawn has, has human texture hair. And some of the other characters too. But Prairie's very small. This was a very big Muppet. Like maybe... Six times the size of, of, of Prairie Dawn. So it was going to be very evident that her human texture hair was a main trait. So, you know, but then again, a woman named uh, Dr. Jeanette Bentoncourt, who I love dearly. She's the one that said, she was in charge of the autism initiative. And she said, you know what, let's just try it Lewis's way and see, I have a feeling he's onto something. So um, when they went ahead and built it that way and she, the test was beautiful. She, her first appearance was she was coloring and Big Bert wanted to make friends with her but she did not engage with him directly. She was coloring or drawing and he thought she didn't like him, but it's just because she was, she was different. And Alan was able to explain that to Big Bird. And after a while, you know, of course, at the very end, they, they were friends. And I celebrated that because one of the things that I do at Sesame workshop is I'm the director of the still photography photo shoots where, you know, we silhouette them. We could put any background that you want. Well, I was doing Julia's photo shoot and I had her um, hugging Big Bird's, you know, Hugging Big Bird's beak in a certain way That she does And it it really touched my heart to kind of Reminisce her first episode At the photo shoot It is still probably my favorite photograph Of two
0: Muppets together That I worked on anyway Something that I really Admire about you in our conversation Is how Emotionally Present you are Like I love how You're so real and so candid, and thank
1: you, Bob. That means so much to me. That really means so much to me. Because so, so many people
0: are, when they do an interview or when they do a podcast, they kind of put on this persona where, oh, I have to be a certain way. No, be yourself, be authentic. And well, you know, part of it is you're my buddy, and I've been wanting
1: to do this for a long. We've been planning this for a long time. Now that we're doing it, I'm just glad to be with my friend. I'm glad other people are going to hear it, but I'm, I'm talking to my buddy. So that's yeah. really what this is about.
0: <laughs> but thank you. So on that, on that note, you're going to interview me now. Do you have any, you have any questions for me? Is there anything you want to know?
1: Yes. Yeah, so uh, you, you told me that you have cerebral palsy, right? Yep. And if you, can you help me understand like what specific type you have? Because I'm sure everyone's different with different degrees. I don't even know how to, how to ask the question, but yeah. what, what's your type of cerebral palsy and how do, you, how do you get through
0: it? I have spastic quadriplegia, which means it affects all four limbs to where mm. it's difficult for me to hold a pencil, to draw, to, you know, even work with my equipment sometimes. But what I've learned is that there are ways to get around it with technology now where I can have a successful podcast and have the equipment work for me and my needs, but not sacrifice the quality. Outstanding.
1: That is so great. And you do a good job, obviously, doing it all these years. (laughs) You're doing
0: something right. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm so glad that I started to speak about my disability more on this podcast because in the beginning, I completely hid it. I didn't tell anybody because I was... I wanted to be this polished radio host who talked fast in between music. I was a radio DJ. (laughs) And then I just... Started having conversations with people and showing my true, authentic self, and I think I like this way better.
1: So, no, there's nothing better than the real you. I mean, trust me, and it means a lot because you know, there are a lot of people that maybe they want to do it too, but they figure, oh, well, I can't do it, nobody's going to listen to me, or I'm not going to be able to do it for whatever, whatever reason. But because you're doing this, people will see this example, and other people that have challenges in their life not just disabilities but maybe shyness shyness can be debilitating but you know if they see someone like you who's stepped out and doing this thing and talking freely about their lives and having a great time doing it and engaging all these other people who love you so much that's going to inspire a lot of other people so thank you man that's it's not just courageous but it's necessary but i can tell you're having a good time too because why else would you do it
0: yeah yeah When I talk to a creative, like a film director, an artist, or somebody like you, if I talk about my disability, I'm not asking you to go in the office the next day and change your script, change your drawing, change anything about what you've done based on what I've said. Right. But if the next time this happens, if the next time you come across where you have to draw someone with a disability, you have to think in this way if I'm just a thought in your mind if something I said is a thought in your mind for even a second then I've done my job
1: well you, you have a lot more of you in me than that trust me the things you say the questions you ask you're, you're really unique I'm not just saying that man because you know people come and just, just try to soup up or you know kiss up to the to the interviewer no, you're asking me questions no one else have, has ever asked me and in the ways that no one has done so. You're actually helping to grow me. So this is
0: awesome, man. You kidding me? No, I'm proud of you. I'm grateful to you too. And I'm proud that you're my friend. Oh, thanks, nice, buddy. I really... And it's so funny because we have a lot of mutual friends, not only in the Sesame world, but in the animation world. One of my dearest friends... Is Pat Giles? Oh man, Pat! <laughs> and that's it's, great. It's to the point where, like, we hang out in person all the time. He's been to my house, and our families know each other. And it's, it's so cool.
1: That <gasps> like, was my boss. Of, of course, he never felt like a boss because we all had such a good time. But he was my boss for a little while. And when I worked for MTV Animation,
0: yeah, he um, he's awesome. I love him. Say hi. So,
1: tr- say hi for me next time you talk to my man.
0: Shout out to Pat. Yeah. <laughs> so it's so weird how our our worlds kind of intersect, and how we know each other. It's so it's so cool, and I'm so happy that we can share time together today
1: same here man it's a long time coming but it was inevitable because we're in the same world you know we're part of the same tribe so it was it was just a matter of time but i'm glad we finally got to do it so what is
0: what is the hardest part for you about being a creative person hmm
1: again something no one's ever asked me before the hardest part you know what, to be honest with you, the reason why that's such an alien question to me is because I never think in terms of hard or easy. I think about what do I need to do? What, how can I bring myself to whatever I'm doing you know? And, and do the best I can? How can I learn from this so I can be better next time? Like when I direct the photo shoots. You know, the very first time I did it, of course, I was scared out of my mind, but I didn't think about how hard it was. I said, well, how can I become Elmo? How can I just, I want to just vanish and let nothing but Elmo exist so that he can, I can pose him the proper way. Because, you know, the way I do photo shoots, the, the Muppets are fitted with armature wire. And we have a collection that are just for photo shoots. But if I have to do like, say the Count or for, for a long time, even Oscar the Grouch, they would have to use the actual performance Muppet and fit them with armature wire. So whenever I work with those two, actually right now they have a, a an Oscar that's, an, that's a photo Muppet. But the thing is that, you know, I have to, perf- I'm performing. So I have to completely become whoever it is. And all the Muppeteers, they have to do deal with their characters, but I have to be everybody from snuffy down to slimy. I have to do all of them. And it's a, it's a dream because I, I, I watched the show. And of course, whenever, back in the day before, before the pandemic happened, I would almost live on the street. I mean, such Street was like my address for a while, I'd be up there working on so many different projects and uh, or if I especially if I designed a new Muppet, I would be there for that purpose to watch how they were operating to learn from the puppeteer how they were interpreting that character. So that whenever I had to draw the character, I could bring that performance to it. But, yeah, no, I, you know, it, it was just, you know, I think I kind of skewed off of our of your question. If you want to re-ask, that'd be great. But I hope I answered your question. If there's something that I missed, please help me. Yeah.
0: I was like, you know what? I think you answered it. I think oh, we, got there. we got there. So yes. on that note, I don't know if you were here at this time, if you were accessing me yet. Did you ever visit the bear set, Bear in the Big Blue House? No, I never did. Never got there. that's a very similar type, big bird type costume and the whole thing. Yeah, and that's like,
1: brilliant. I love that bear costume. And the way Noel would perform it, it was just alive. I didn't think of it as a performance puppet. I thought of it. That, that's that's the bear. It's a hey, bear.
0: I love that bear. I oh remember so no
1: much. To uh, me, that that the way, I don't know how, I've never, again, I, I know a lot about the Muppets, how they're built, like even Snuffy and, and, and Big Bird, but I don't know how they built the bear to make him so expressive. I mean, when Noah was in there doing that, I mean, his head was moving, both hands. I said, so how are they doing this? But he was alive. He was absolutely alive.
0: And to think that he was practically blind
1: in there, like that. Well, that brings me back to to Carol Spinney, my dear friend Carol Spinney. I saw him riding a unicycle inside a Big Bird, and he, of course, he can't see out. Just like Noel couldn't see out of the bear. You know, I guess they had the same system where they had to, the little monitor on the
0: inside. Yeah, he didn't. After a while, Noel got a camera in the eye so he could see, ah, but for nice. like, but like that was only like the last season or so, so by the time he got that, I had to really, he had already been doing episode after episode, because, right. and I Love think me. Bear was where Sesame is now, at Kaufman Astoria. I think that's where Bear was, where Sesame is now, and Sesame...
1: Oh. Yeah, upstairs because we were downstairs for many years. So yeah, I think the bear set was stricken, and then we moved up to that set.
0: Yeah, I haven't even been there. I know the whole way out I of know. the. I know
1: that's really weird, man. <laughs> what are you psychic? No, we we, we got to get you up there, Bobby. It's 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 way overdue. It's way overdue. And again, you know the the COVID restrictions are supposed to be lifting up. Um, sometime in May, so we'll see how, how they work things out for visitors again. And they love to have visitors, especially the Muppeteers, you know, because then they can go off and grab their Muppet and go and talk to people with no cameras on. Yeah, and
0: it's beautiful. One of my favorite Muppet appearances ever you know, how you have pop culture touchstones that kind of impact you. Sure. One of mine. And it sounds crazy to say, but when I say it, you'll understand why. The Rosie O'Donnell show.
1: Okay, and which one? With Elmo?
0: Just the whole show in general. and oh, like okay. Having Elmo there and Sesame was such a big part of that show.
1: Yeah, she was a real fan,
0: boy. <laughs> and I, I remember her last week of shows, like... Elmo wore a rosy jacket on that show. And I'm like Of course you were just starting out when that show ended, but have have you ever seen like a talk show appearance with these guys, with the Muppets or with Sheshui? Like are oh, you involved in are you involved in that? Are you Sure.
1: Every now and then I, I would be involved, but I guess the greatest moment was you know when Kevin Clash was doing Elmo he and he and again he and I were still close. We, we were very close even back then. I, whenever he was directing an episode, I would do his storyboards for him, and I was just very, very deeply involved with the show when he was there. So I remember one time he was going to be on the Emerald Agassi show. Remember Emerald? Yeah, yeah. So Kevin said, "Hey, Louis, why don't you come? You know, I'm going to be on. Elmo's going to be on with with Emerald. Why, why don't you come?" And I was already a fan of Emeralds. So I said, Kevin, yeah, I would love to go. So I got to go out and sit in the front tables where you actually get to taste the food. And it was a funny, funny episode because I think the funniest moment was when Emerald was mixing something in a bowl and he had eggs in there. And he said, smell that Elmo, doesn't that smell good? And Elmo says, no, it smells like raw eggs. And everybody, wrote. it was, because you didn't. You thought Elmo was going to say something cute.
0: My, my favorite joke that Elmo always says is, Elmo likes wasabi. That's why Elmo has no eyelids.
1: Like... <laughs> but I never heard that one. <laughs> that's so funny. Like, yeah, I, I love this world, man. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I, I love it. Like, I think my my favorite thing about Sesame is just how inclusive it is. That's from day one. From yeah. day one. And what does diversity and inclusion mean to you? It means just life, the way life is supposed to be. Because
1: everybody, that's why I love Sesame, because everyone's welcome. No matter what you're going through, what what you're dealing with. And sometimes people don't like that because, you know, there are things that, that show up on Sesame Street that people don't expect to be on the show, you know. But the, the ultimate thing is that everyone's welcome, and that's that's the thing. We're never going to be hip, hypocritical from day one. Just having that many people of color, you know, on the show was already a, a you know a landmark. You know, something that shifted television forever. And it just means like it means this is how life really is. There are all kinds of people doing all kinds of things. And if we would just be open-minded enough to just kind of get to know each other before you, you create some kind of a, a, you know, decide who that person is. No, listen to each other. Just say hi and then go from there. Don't try to decide who that person is before you even meet them because they look different or they sound different or they act different. It's not real. When you do that, it's not real. The inclusion part of it, that's the reality. That's why Sesame street is the longest street in the world because no matter what nationality, no matter what's
0: going on, everybody's welcome. And that's that. <laughs> Hope that answers your question, but Of course, yeah. And I don't want to make this conversation super morbid, but I'm just kind of curious. One of the days in history that really shifted pop culture and the way we view things was September 11th. Yeah. And I want to know where you were and what Sesame did to kind of deal with that because that you were just a year into your, your working there. So what are your memories of that?
1: Sure, I have no problem sharing that because that means a lot to me. And I, even though, I mean, I actually started in 92, but they asked me to come on full-time in 2000. So... It was a year into my full-time work for them, but I had already been working many, many yeah, years. Yeah, but
0: still. Like,
1: yeah. No, absolutely. So that day, and I remember very clearly because it was a beautiful day. The sky was gorgeous. It was yeah. clear. The one thing that gave me a little bit of a hint, of course, I didn't know what the hint was, but uh, at the time I had a cat. His name was Bailey. He was a big, fat guy. He didn't, he, he didn't run around a lot. He liked to play, but just rolling on his back. That morning... He was running around the apartment like a man, like a maniac. And I I thought something was wrong with him. I thought he was like sick or maybe something happened in his brain. Like maybe there's some kind of a virus. He was just acting way out of, you know, because animals can sense things. You know, I'm not trying to get into too deep into that, but that's the only thing that I could figure out. So, But I had to go to work. So I left for the the office. And I remember thinking about Bailey, but at the same time I was looking at you because I was on the, um, I think the R train. Well, that was one of the trains that goes over the Manhattan Bridge, and uh, and I was looking out over this, the the skyline, and of course I'm, I look at the World Trade Center. I I didn't pay specific attention to it, but of course it's the most iconic and boldest structure that you see when you look at the at the land at the uh, cityscape. So um, and I just appreciate the day. So I got to, I get to work. And of course, back then we all had televisions in our in our rooms, so I would I just turned it on because I always watched Sesame Street. But this was I don't think Sesame was on yet, or maybe it was on. But then the news broke in, and what I was doing at that particular moment in my office was I was preparing for what I call the tribe sessions. There were these these groups of artists and creative people that I was I brought together just to kind of get together, kind of like what you and I are doing now, but it was like a, a group of people they they let me use um the the big conference rooms in um at sesame workshop so i said well i'm gonna if they let me use them, i'm gonna invite people in so we can come and talk and have have this session together so i was writing the proposal to to show to the i think he was the chief operating officer at the time not the ceo but anyhow as i'm writing it i see the first plane i'm watching tv and of course the news is on so whatever whatever was on before which was probably sesame street because I think Sesame came on at 9 o'clock at that point. On channel it, on channel 13. 13, yes. But then every everything was showing what was happening. So I saw that first plane hit. I oh, my God, what a terrible accident, which I thought was an accident at first. And I said, goodness, that's terrible. And I felt terrible, but I, I kept on working on the proposal. But then the second one hit. And that's when I said, wait a minute, something's going on here. And everything stopped then. For whatever reason, everyone came into my office. We all had television sets, but we all came into my office, and we're watching what's happening. We just can't believe it, and it was just you know, like I don't have to tell you, it was just terrible. Yeah, what was going on, and um, and I and while I was writing the proposal, I said, you know what, and I had already told people about the tribe sessions, so I wrote a letter to the ce to the chief operating officer saying, you know. I had already spoken to him about it, said, thank you so much for being open to letting me do these these creative meetings. But, you know, with what's happening now with the World Trade Center, just forget about it. I'm not going to do that now. He wrote back immediately. That's why I love this man. His name is Mel Ming. Mel wrote back immediately, said, no, you better do this. You keep going. Don't let this stop you because you're going to need it more now than ever. And I was stunned that he... I mean, he, again, with all that going on, he wanted to safeguard because he knew what I was doing. I said, a lot of young creative people don't have a place to go and talk about the challenges and the fears that they have or to just celebrate or to just get together. And he liked the idea. That's why he approved it. But then um, this happened and I was going to cancel it. He said, don't you dare. You keep going. So it wasn't that weekend, but it was the following weekend, And I think that I, I said, look, we go on. And of course, at the beginning of it, we had a moment of silence. Then we got into the tribe sessions and it became very popular. People were coming in. That's when I was able to even get like, um, like Frank Oz came and spoke for me and Drew Struzan, the 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 movie poster artist. Oh my,
0: I love him. He's a wonderful man.
1: But the, 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 key, the key was all this came because I did the tribe sessions. I was going to cancel them because of 9-11, but Mel convinced me to stay with it and I'm so glad he did. I was really proud because again, no matter where you looked, you saw the nine eleven. You saw the buildings coming down. You saw the planes going in, and it was just too much. Yeah. So, but but uh, Channel Thirteen let children's programming continue, so
0: that way there's some respite, some place to go. Even as a six year old, I knew that it was bigger than anyone because I had just entered um, kindergarten. Yes. I I was because. I went to a school for for three years just for kids with disabilities. And then when I was six years old, I went to public school for the first time. Really? And it was a total culture shock because you're with people that understand you. But, you know, I'm going into this new school. It's September 2001. It's 9-11. I'm at the school. I'm... You know, I think I'm in class or something, and I hear this, and it turns out the school nurse's husband, who I just met, like, days prior, because you got to admit, you got to remember, this is early September, so school wouldn't be going on for that long. Right. So the school nurse's husband passed away in the towers and she and she never came back
1: oh my god that
0: year so i'm transitioning to this new school and then everything unfolded so i kind of have have this grasp on everything more than most people my age do sure
1: wow that's really something Well, the the, the one thing that Sesame did, I mean, again, Channel 13 kept running children's programming so that there was a place to go without seeing those horrific scenes. And I remember, but Sesame still dealt with it because we did an episode where, you know, there was a fire in Mr. Hooper's store and Elmo didn't, he didn't ever want to go back in Mr. Hooper's store. He was scared. It was the first time we'd seen Elmo like really scared and worried.
0: And it was- I love that episode
1: so much. Yeah. it, It really helped a lot of people. When he met the firefighter, and of course, he was still scared of the firefighter, but the firefighter was explaining, well, Elmo, you know, this is what I wear when I when I have to go help to put out a fire. Then he starts taking off one piece at a time, and he's just this regular guy underneath, and Elmo felt better, and he was able to go back into Mr. Hooper's store. I love that episode, but that's how we dealt with 9-11 because the kids knew something was going on, and you don't try to lie or sugarcoat with kids, but you do have to speak to them where they are and that's how we we handled it and one
0: of the other things and I have to give credit to my friends Christopher Cerf and everybody over there they were involved in that whole we are family video where all of the children's characters collided and they sang we are family together so it was Barney and Bear and everybody on the Sesame set it was crazy so So, you know, because I feel like that moment, that day, changed. The world hasn't been the same thing. You're right. You're absolutely right. Straight up. How could it be? It couldn't be the same after that. I just had to bring that up because it's such an important moment in Sesame's history, too. Yes, it is.
1: Yeah, and I appreciate you bringing it up. You know, sometimes people don't want to talk about these things. I think it's important that we bring them up and kind of remember, because you don't want to forget. Of course, nobody's going to forget that. But there are a lot of people, there are a lot of kids that were born, like, shortly after that or shortly before that, that, you know, don't really remember it. And it's something to be remembered, at least acknowledged. Because, again, like you said, it changed everything. And sometimes you got to f- figure out, well, why are things the way they are? Well, that's one of them for sure.
0: I, I love that we had that conversation, and Thank I you. love that we spoke about that.
1: Same here. Thank you, man. I appreciate that.
0: So switching gears completely, because can't be said for too long. So I know that you have an affinity for Cookie Monster.
1: <laughs> yes, I do. Why do you say that, though?
0: <laughs> oh, gee, I don't know, man. <laughs> um, What do you love about him so much?
1: Well, I'll never grow up, but if I ever do, I want to be just like Cookie Monster because I learned... I do too.
0: Can I join you? Yes, yeah.
1: you can. We'll be twins.
0: <laughs> um, I learned
1: just because I, I watch. I always watch the episodes. I'm always watching the show anyhow, even to this day. I have a monitor on my desk and I watch the show. I'm always learning about the characters because I have to draw them or I have to pose them in for a photo shoot. So I want to keep seeing how they they don't stay the same. They grow too, even though they're generally the same. But what I learned about Cookie Monster is that he loves his friends more than cookies. Sesame Street ran out of cookies one day and he, you know, he was looking everywhere for cookies. And every time he saw something like a big circle, he saw a clock, he saw, you know, the w- wheel of a bicycle and he thought it was a cookie. Then he saw Oscar's garbage can lid, and he said, is that a cookie? And Oscar says, go make cookies somewhere else. And but he said, he a cookie monster heard Oscar say, go make cookies somewhere else. And he said, ooh, that's a good idea. I'm going to go make cookies. So he went to Alan to learn how to make cookies. So Alan said, sure, I'll teach you how. So he has all the ingredients laid out. And Cookie Monster wants to eat all the ingredients right away without even making cookies. But Alan said, no, the show is about learning patience. So um, he said, no, Cookie Monster, just wait. You'll like them after we're done making the actual cookies. So he said, oh, me can't take this. So he just covered his eyes while Elmo and I think it was Zoe or Abby and Alan were making the cookies. So Cookie Monster just keeps covering his eyes saying, cookie ready, cookie ready. until finally, Alan says, cookie ready. And he comes out and he has a whole tray of cookies. And he hands him the Cookie Monster. And he says, oh, this wonderful. Each one like Cookie Snowflake. Each one is different and unique. Then Maria comes. She says, oh, I smell fresh cookies. And Cookie Monster says, oh, yeah, sure. Everybody take a cookie. He gave away. He didn't even think about it. He gave away every one of the cookies. He didn't mean to. Because, of course, he wanted one but he loves his friends more than, he would give away all of his cookies and he did. But of course that day Grover happened to, one of his jobs happened to be delivering cookies that day. So he was driving the truck (laughs) and Cookie Monster got all of his cookies. So it was a nice episode, but it taught me. See, that's people who are passionate about something. Sometimes they can be a little too pushy. Some people would step over their own mother to get to what they want because they're just so passionate about something. But Cookie Monster, as passionate as he is about cookies, he thinks that if he gives a cookie to his friends, they're going to enjoy it as much as he does. And of course, that's not possible, but he he believes that there's a possibility. So he'll give away his last cookie. And I, and I remember uh, Lulu, the character from way, way back in the day, you know, he was singing the song about friendship. And he's saying, sometimes me think what is friend. And then he starts talking about the friendship and everything. And then he ends up saying maybe friend is someone you give up last cookie for sorry for my singing i apologize but anyway um so he gives a cookie to, to lulu and lulu says wait cookie monster let me break it in half that way we can each have a half a cookie and he says no no you can't, you have a whole cookie somehow me okay with that that moment really showed me you know you can be passionate about something but you don't have to be a jerk you don't have to step off of, of your friends over people you can share the love and and give up what you get and then he ended up getting it anyway so yeah, we, you know we got in trouble a while back because people thought he was going to become vegetable monster because he became the 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 healthy habits mascot and people went berserk we even had to do a, an episode to make sure people knew no he is cookie monster he's just a healthy habits initiative character that that talks about cookies being a sometimes food but again, the, people love this show so much. If you make a change and they don't like it, they let you know. that you know, we got all kind of hate mail and stuff like phone calls. Cookie Monster, he's my favorite. You can't change Cookie Monster. It's just that we didn't really follow up, I guess, the right way to make sure people understood. And he wasn't going to just be Vegetable Monster. But again, I, I like the fact that the fans know that that show belongs to them, not to us. We're the stewards of it, but it belongs to the world.
0: Well, I have to tell you that this conversation has been an absolute joy. Oh man, I feel the same way, Bob. Long time coming, but what a what a joy to speak and with you. So, I have to ask you this: What have you taken away from this conversation? Because when I have these conversations. I don't intend to impact someone, but I have a feeling that this conversation touched you. Absolutely. And I, I want to know what your thoughts are.
1: That even though it's on Zoom and even though it's, it's a podcast, the intimacy that's possible when two genuine people who really love the Muppets and, yeah, who love each other, are willing to share, just talk. You know, because people, like you said before, sometimes people put on an air or they think they're supposed to do something. I'm just hanging out with my friend. I'm aware that this is your podcast, so I know people are going to hear this. But that doesn't matter. I'm talking to my friend. And you have been so generous, too. I mean, look, when you asked me what I wanted to ask, you allowed me to ask you a very, very intimate, personal question. And you were as candid as can be. So, man... That's sacred to me, Bob. I, I appreciate you being that real and allowing me to be real too. So please don't minimize the impact that this t- conversation, yeah, it's a podcast, I know, but I'm just talking to my buddy. Yeah, Don't diminish the impact this has on me. I'm even a little choked up now, to be honest, because I don't think I've ever gotten to talk like this at any of the uh, other, I mean, I have a good time. Something a little different about this. And I think it's because of the intimacy of you allowing me to ask questions too that made a big difference. So thank you.
0: You're welcome. So where can people connect with you? Where can people find you
1: right now? I'm, I'm developing an art school and people are going to be able to find out more about that later on, but I'm still deep in the, in the process of it. I'm writing the book. You know, I have my book deal, everything's going on, but right now, if people want to find me, they can either go on LinkedIn or Facebook well, you know, when everything starts and it's Lewis Henry Mitchell. So you have to put my full name and you'll find me. When the time comes, I'll launch my school and everything and do my, my own podcast. And that'll be later on. But right now, I Facebook would, love, I would
0: love to be a guest on it sometime.
1: I'm gonna hold you to that, buddy. You hear me? I'm <laughs> serious. Yeah, I know yeah. you are. You you allow me on yours, so now payback time. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, bitch been a joy, and I hope we could do
1: this again too. Me too. Thanks for having me, Bob. Appreciate you, buddy. Keep up the great
0: work. You got it. Thanks so much. The